If someone were to ask you what the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was all about, what would you say? What would be some things that would come to mind? Maybe some of you, the first thing that comes to mind would be the graphic that's up on the screen right there, and that's the furnace. That this is about these three that get thrown into the fiery furnace and what happens with that. Maybe some of you would say, well, this has to do with the fact that they wouldn't bow down to the statue, that they wouldn't compromise, that they wouldn't fall down. Dude, I'm, I'm so glad that that was not your guitar. I had a panic moment for a second. We're good. My bad. No, it's good. It's a good object lesson. They wouldn't do that. They would not fall down and worship the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Maybe some of you would say, well, this is about these three standing out from the crowd and and being unique and being different for their faith in God. Maybe some of you would say, well, this is a story about faithfulness to God. How many of you would say that this, though, is a a story about worship? Because that's really what this is all about. In that song that we just sang, I'm Coming Back to the Heart of Worship, is a song that Nathan and I didn't really coordinate on, and that's a song that I grew up in the 90s singing in youth group. So the, the chances of that being played here tonight at this occasion, it's really kind of a God thing to set the table for what we're going to talk about tonight, and that is worship. Ten times in the first 18 verses, and that's all we're going to be looking at together tonight from Daniel chapter 3, but ten times in those 18 verses, the word in Hebrew for worship appears. And whenever you see something like that happen, when you see a word repeated that many times, and if you're looking and you're trying to count through, it's either worship or serve. Sometimes it's translated, but it's the same Hebrew word there. When you see a word or a phrase or a concept repeated over and over and over again, it's a, it's a way for God to, to wave a giant red flag in our face or a giant flashing neon sign in our face and say, hey, pay attention to this. This is what I'm talking about here. And in the first 18 verses of Daniel chapter 3, God is talking to us about worship. So while, yes, this is a story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Rakshak and Benny, if you like that better, resolving to obey God because of their confidence in who God is, it's really a story about them obeying God and through obeying God, them worshiping God. So grab your Bibles, take them, turn them over to Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. And let's begin, just read through the first seven verses here. Daniel 3 verse 1 says this, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices and the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Let's get a, a feel for this image. 
If you remember last time we were together, we talked about Daniel chapter 2. We talked about this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And you remember this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was a dream about what? It was a dream about a statue, right? If I can get my volume turned down a little bit, I'm ringing up here off the pulpit, I think. And so as, as Nebuchadnezzar is having this dream about the statue, and Daniel's going through the interpretation, he starts with the head and he says, the head was a head of what? Gold, right? And who represented the head of gold? Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar gets it in his head then, okay, since I'm the head of gold, since that's me, then I'm going to set up this golden statue. So let's talk about this statue for a minute. It, it was 90 feet tall by nine feet wide. That's real tall and real skinny, right? 90 feet tall. That, think about it this way. That's about four, four and a half, two-story houses stacked on top of each other. So that's how tall we're talking about when we're talking about nine feet, 90 feet tall. And then about a basketball hoop, and I know I'm about a foot short on that, but wide. And so super tall, super skinny, but it's, it's covered in, in gold. Doesn't mean that the whole thing was solid gold. Most likely it was constructed of, of a wooden uh, edifice and then covered on the outside with, with gold plating. But it was meant to draw people's eye, to draw people's attention, to cause people to be amazed at this statue. And then on top of that, he takes it and he sets it up on a plain called the Plain of Dura there in Babylon, which would have made it visible for miles and miles and miles and miles around. It's, it's supposed to, to, to draw attention. It's supposed to capture people's eyes. It's supposed to be the, the focal point for Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And while the text doesn't specifically say this was a statue of Nebuchadnezzar, again, when we go back to chapter two and we see that Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold, because remember there, Daniel doesn't say Babylon is the head of gold. He says, you, king, are the head of gold. And so this is Nebuchadnezzar setting this up. And, and the idea here, it's the similar idea that uh, happened with the, the Egyptian pharaohs, with the pyramids and the obelisks. This was a, a monument to Nebuchadnezzar's greatness. People were supposed to look at the statue and to be, go from being impressed by the statue to be, being impressed by the one the statue represented, who was Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar sets this up, and it would seem that Nebuchadnezzar has a little bit of a, a short-term memory problem, doesn't he? Because at the end of chapter 2, look back, in fact, at, at verses 47 through 48. Here they are up on the screen right here. Chapter 2, verses 47 through 48, Nebuchadnezzar, after Daniel has interpreted the dream form, says this, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole prince of ba province of ba Babylon, words, and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So the king had said, look, God, Daniel, your God is the God of gods and the king of all kings, the Lord of all kings. So if Nebuchadnezzar is going to set up an image to anything, and he shouldn't have even done this, but if anything, he should have sinned by setting up an image of, of who? Rhymes with schmod, starts with a G. Come on, guys. God, right? If he really believed that, he would have said, we're, we're here to worship God, not worship me. But instead, he sets up this gigantic golden image of himself, and then he gathers everybody. You say, everybody? What about Daniel? Well, it appears that Daniel's not here. Well, how do you know Daniel's not here? Because it would be totally inconsistent for Daniel to be here and not included in the, the defiance that we're going to find from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It would be totally absurd to, to assume that Daniel was here and had also fallen down to worship this golden image, especially when you know the rest of the book. So that's led scholars, commentators, historians, theologians to conclude that Daniel must have been somewhere else on some other urgent matter of the king's business. I mean, when we look back up at verse 48 of chapter 2, the king gave Daniel high honors made many, and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. 
So Daniel's basically the vice king. He's right underneath the king here. So it's likely the king had him somewhere else in, a, in his kingdom doing something else. But everybody else was gathered together. All of this long lists of all of these different officials, right? The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, the officials, all of them gathered together. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, look, you're going to hear music. And I think it probably was one of the most god-awful noises that humanity has ever heard. Because you read all of those, those instruments that were involved in there, and it just said, hey, they were all going to play at the same time. And there's, I don't think there was rehearsal for this. I think they, they just grabbed the people that knew how to use these things or had one laying around in their closet and said, hey, show up, and I need you to play music. So just think about like a cacophony of chaos when it comes to music. And, and Nebuchadnezzar says, when you hear that, everybody fall down and worship this image. And in verse 7, it says that as soon as the, the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, anytime the bagpipes are involved, you know it's not going to sound good. <laughs> and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, languages fell down and worshipped. There's our word again, worshipped. Worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But not, not everybody, right? Look at verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Your suck-ups is what they are. You, O king, you've made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, here it is, the list again, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. Why is this being repeated over and over and over again? So we understand that this was clear. Okay, so we understand that this is not like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just forgot or that they didn't hear. It's being repeated so that we understand that they knew what was going on. Verse 11, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning fiery furnace. There are, king, certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's our buddies. That's Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Y'all, as we walk through this passage tonight, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that your obedience to God goes deeper than a list of right and wrong. I want you to see and I want you to understand from this text and from looking at these three men, these three young men who are younger than y'all at this point in time, I want you to see in their actions, in their faithfulness, in their obedience to God, not just about keeping what's right and what's wrong, but about worshiping him. That their obedience is inherently connected to their worship. In fact, Paul makes this point in Romans. He says, what you obey is what you worship, what you serve. You want to know what your idols are? Look at the passions that you have in your life and ask yourself what, what passions are in your life that you're a, a slave to. Paul says it this way in Romans 6.16. He says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And so what you obey is your master. What you obey is the object of your worship. And we've already seen Daniel and his three friends obeying in pretty tight spots in the first two chapters. We saw in chapter one where they went to the, 
the, the king's chief eunuch and said, hey, look, we're not going to eat the king's food. We're not going to drink the king's wine because it's been offered to idols, and that would be to defile ourselves before God. So, look, we're going to propose this 10-day test, but do with us what you will. We're, we're not going to eat the food. And then in the second chapter, we saw them turn to the Lord and, and trust in him for the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. They didn't panic. They didn't run away. They remained calm, and they remained collected, and, and they kept their wits, and they went to the Lord. And now we come to chapter three, though, and we're going to see obedience again. But this time, now we're seeing obedience come to its, its full connotations for us. And that is that obedience has to do with our worship and whether or not we are worshiping God. So the stage is set. Y'all put yourselves here. I know this is a familiar story. You've heard it since you were knee high to a grasshopper and the flannel boards and all that jazz, right? But put yourself in their shoes, listen to this as though you were telling the story, as though you were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The stage is set and everybody's there and you're standing amidst all of these people. And imagine what's going through your mind as you're hearing the command that's given, as you're staring at this gigantic statue and you're hearing the people give the order for the king saying, look, you're going to hear music. And when you hear music, all of you are to fall down and you're to worship this idol. And if you don't, here's the fiery furnace and that's where you're going. Imagine being there. And ask yourself, what would you do? Again, the rationalization of compromise is so easy in this moment. Man, Daniel needs us. If we stay standing when everybody else hits the ground, what's Daniel going to do without us? We're going to be in the fiery furnace. We're going to die. Man, God needs us. God needs us to, to, to preserve a remnant for him in, in Babylon. Who else is going to be here to, to serve the Lord and obey him? If we don't compromise right now, we won't really mean it. I mean, sure, we'll fall down with everybody, but like, we'll just sniff the dirt. We're not going to really worship anything. And this way, God can keep using us for great things in the future in Babylon. Do you guys see how easy it would have been to compromise? I want you to feel the weight of this. That this is them basically saying, look, yeah, okay, we're, we're, we're dead but we're okay with that because we'd rather do that than compromise and disobey our God. We'd rather stay faithful to him and worship him instead of worshiping this idol. And so the music plays and thousands are on their face and three are standing. Would you be standing? Have you ever had your faith tested like this, your worship tested like this. Point number one tonight is this, be ready for your worship to be tested. Be ready for your worship to be tested. Y'all, I've said it before in this series, I'm going to say it again. These three didn't all of a sudden decide in that moment what they were going to do. They were prepared because they were already living this life of faithful resolve and obedience to God before this point. It's not as though they got here and they had to get together and be like, hey, what are we going to do when the music plays? Are we going to fall down? Are we going to stand up? No, they knew why. They knew what they were going to do. They didn't have to wonder. Why? Because they were anchored to their confidence in the Lord. They loved God more than life itself. And they were willing to say, look, if, if the choice is death or compromise, we're, we're dead. Because that's better for us than compromising. Y'all, for these three, the idol was super clear. It's 90 feet tall and nine feet wide and covered in gold and set up in the middle of a field. 
In some ways, we should envy idols that are that big and that clear because for us, our idols are much more subtle, but don't think for a second that we don't have them in our lives. You have your own idols that the enemy is saying, hey, look, fall down and worship this idol. What are some of those? How about reputation? The enemy says, look, if you want to be thought of this way, this is what you need to do. If you want people to think about you this way, if you want to be liked by this person, if you want to be liked by this culture, if you want to be liked by your workplace, if you want to be liked by the world, you need to believe this way, think this way, act this way, vote this way, talk this way, identify this way. All of those actions that I just listed off, those are acts of worship. And the question is, are you worshiping a reputation or are you worshiping God? Let's talk about some other idols. How about sexual identity? Man, that's a gigantic one in our world right now. That we somehow have the right to look at our creator and say, you screwed up when you made me in my mother's womb, Psalm 139. Let let me be clear on this. God did not make a mistake when he knit you together in your mother's womb. And for someone to say, I'm a man, but I'm actually a woman in a man's body, is to look at God and say, you screwed up. And they may be the nicest person in the world, and they may be your best friend. I don't care. It's wrong. And it's the world saying, here's an idol, bow down and worship it. How about from sexual identity to sex? There's an idol that the world throws at you. Whether that's through pornography or premarital sex or just crossing lines with your boyfriend or girlfriend that you know you shouldn't. And the world said, here's an idol, bow down to it, worship it. You know, those three all kind of fit under this umbrella, this overarching umbrella of instant gratification, which is another idol that the world sets up and says, you want to be satisfied now. You need to be happy now. You don't need to wait. Don't wait. No, this is going to make you happy. You're frustrated. You're depressed. It's because of this. Change this and this will make you happy. And it's the world saying, bow down and worship this idol. Your appearance, right? Look this way. If you look this way, you're going to be happy. So you need to do everything that you possibly can to look this way. That's the world saying, bow down to this idol. Intelligence. You need to be the smartest guy in the room. Solomon talked about that in the book of Ecclesiastes. He said, look, I pursued wisdom for wisdom's sake, and at the end of the day, I found out that it's what? All fleeting. It's not going to satisfy you. But the world says, pursue intelligence. Go to the best school. Get the best GPA. Get the best job. Climb the corporate ladder, and then you'll be satisfied. Bow down and worship is what the world says. Social media. That you would have a certain persona on social media. That you would have a certain look on social media. That you would have a certain vibe on social media. That you would have a certain number of followers on social media. That you would be following these people on social media. And the world says, hey, bow down and worship. An obvious one, right, is money. That was there in Daniel's day. That's here today as well. Worship at the foot of money. And what Jesus said specifically about money in the Sermon on the Mount is he said this. He said, look, no one can serve what? 
two masters. Because you're going to love one and you're going to hate the other. Students, let's be clear about this. God wants your full soul devotion. He wants your worship. And he is a jealous God, he says in, in Exodus. In other words, he does not want to share your worship with anyone else or anything else. And so it's not enough that you say, well, God, you have most of my worship, but I've got a, a little bit of it held back for this area of my life over here or this area of, of my life over here. No, God says, I want all of your worship. The problem with idols wasn't the statue, okay? The problem with idols was the worship that was rendered to something or someone other than God. That's why idolatry is bad. It has nothing to do with a carving. It has nothing to do with a statue. It has nothing to do with a temple. It has everything to do with the fact that worship that is God's and God's alone is, is directed to somebody else. And students, if you are not ready now, today, for your worship to be continually pressed in and tested by this world, look, it's not going to get easier for you to worship in this world. It's just going to get harder. And like I told you, these three, it's not as though they flipped a switch on this day and said, okay, let's get serious about our faith in, in God right now and we're going to... No. If they weren't already serious, then they were going to join their peers with their faces on the ground, worshiping this idol out of fear that if they don't, they're going to die. I don't often quote him, but I think he gets this one right. Let me give you a quote from Tim Keller on what an idol is for us today. He says, a counterfeit God is anything so central to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. What are those things in your life, students? An idol has such a, a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. Where does your energy go? Where do your passions go? Where does your money go? Where does your time go? An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. What is that for you? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's just the idea of being married. Maybe it's a job. It's a career. It's a title. And then he says, there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. Ten Commandments begins with a focus on worship. It says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, worship. You shall not make yourself the carved image or likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on earth beneath or that is under the earth, worship. You shall not bow down to them or this word serve is the word that means worship them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I want all of your worship is what God is saying. And I visit the sins of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. See y'all. Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, they understood that God wanted all of their worship. They understood it clearly. And so they refused to worship any other God and they were ready to and they did put their lives on the line in order to back that up. Because the music plays and these three stay standing. Students, when was the last time your life was on the line if you didn't worship your idols? 
for me, that's never presented itself. In fact, oftentimes for me, the only thing that's on the line is my own personal comfort, my temporal pleasures. Even still, how often do we compromise and not show the same resolve as these three? We flirt with our idols, and when we flirt with our idols, we play this dangerous game of charades where we acknowledge God on Sundays, but then deny him as we bow to our images for the rest of the week. We're saying, okay, God, I'm going to worship. I'm going to worship you uh, this weekend at the bridge. I'm going to worship you on Sunday night. And, And then you spend the rest of your week worshiping everything else but God. For us as as Christians, y'all, our our worship is tested every day, and it's tested every day in far more subtle ways than it was for these three. Are you prepared day in and day out? Are you ready day in and day out for your worship to be put to the test? Because though it's not going to be a 90-foot-tall statue, it will still be put to the test. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was not happy. Look at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these three, these men, before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the image that I have made. Well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? It's an interesting question at the end there, huh? But here it is. The most powerful man in the entire known world is really, really, really angry with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But he's like that parent, right? And you guys know him. Some of you have that parent that threatens the punishment and then it's like, no, I'm serious. Don't, if you don't, don't press me on this. I, I, I'm, I, look, I've got the Shabbat. It's in my hand. Don't do it. So he's, he brings them back in and he says, look, I'm going to, basically he says, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a second chance. And now it's just these three in front of the king. So talk about, no pun intended, the heat being ratcheted up for these three. They're brought back in, and they're brought in straight before Nebuchadnezzar. And he issues the same command again and says, look, maybe you didn't hear me. Maybe you didn't get the message. So I'll do you a courtesy. If you will fall down and worship the image when you hear the sound of the music. I mean, he had to cue up everybody. This was a a public display, y'all. Because all the musicians are still there. And the people accusing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're still there. And they're pointing them out. And now the king is looking at these three going, okay, everybody's going to play. And now everybody's eyes are on you three. What are you going to do? If you'll fall down and worship, well and good. I'll give you a pass. But if you don't, it's the fiery furnace. These three don't even give Nebuchadnezzar a chance to finish before they interrupt him and they answer him. And that leads to our second point tonight. And it's this, see your obedience as a platform for God's glory. See your obedience as a platform for God's glory. These next two verses, verses 16 and 17, are probably two of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. Yeah, they just make me smile. Verse 16, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, they're like, King, look, you're not worth our, our words. Like, we, don't, we don't have to say anything to you. You have no power over us is essentially what they're stating there. He says, we, we are under no obligation to say anything in response to your words, king. We don't need to say a word to you. But they do, don't they? Why? Because they understood that their obedience is a platform for God's glory. Listen to what they say. If this be so, if what you say is, is really true, king, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. And they throw in, I think almost sarcastically at the end, oh, king. I mean, if that doesn't get you fired up to go out and obey God, I don't know if you've got the blood of Christ pulsing through your veins. I mean, this is, this is amazing. The, the, the boldness, the defiance, and they do it because they're like, look, we're here to do one thing and one thing only, and that's give God a platform to shine through right now. We're here to let you know that the power behind all this is God, not us. And so they're defying the king. They're standing up in front of everybody, in front of the king, in front of everybody else. And they're like, look, don't bother with the music. We're not bowing down. It's not going to happen. And look, God is able to deliver us and he will deliver us from your hand. Your furnace is no big deal to us. He can deliver us from that furnace, but he is going to. It's certain. Notice the language there. He's able and then he will. He's able to save us from the furnace, but King, he's going to save us from your hand. See, for these three, to compromise, to bow down, would have been to rob God of not just the worship that he's due, but also of the opportunity to, to display his power and his glory. Have, you, have y'all ever considered that as you obey God, you are giving him an opportunity to show up big in your life? As you follow the word of God, again, this is why I'm saying it's more than just do right and and don't do wrong. Your obedience to God is more than just keeping a checklist. Legalism is is such a short selling of God's power, right? When you obey God, you are giving God an opportunity to show up big in your life, to be huge, not just in your life, but to everyone who's watching you. And that's what these three understood. They got this. And if this be so, if you throw us into this blazing, fiery furnace, look, our God whom we serve, he's bigger than your furnace. Like, this is fun, but this is kids play to him. He's able to do even that. But look, King, he's going to deliver us from your hand. So we're not afraid. I mean, talk about three that got what Jesus would say eventually. You know, don't fear men. What can men do to you? What did Jesus say men could do to us? What's what's the worst thing they can do to us? What did he say? They can kill us. And you might think, wow, that's a big deal. But not if you understand that our physical life is not all there is, right? Because there's an eternal element here. And these three got that. said, fine, kill us, king. You're just going to be sending us to be with the Lord sooner and faster. Y'all, as we encounter difficult circumstances and choose to compromise rather than to remain faithfully obedient to God, what we're really telling God in that moment is, God, you're not enough. You're not big enough. You're not good enough. You're not powerful enough. You're not faithful enough. You're not true enough. You're not caring enough for me. Y'all, our disobedience, or maybe rather our compromise, always limits God. 
Anytime you sin, you are always limiting God, telling him, you can't come through for me. Let's think about God for a moment, if we can. That's a good thing to do, right, as we're studying the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2. What happens in Genesis 1 and 2? Let's just do a quick survey here of of some portions of Scripture. Genesis 1 and 2 contains the account of what? Creation. Creation. Yes, right? Creation out of nothing. That there was nothing. God spoke everything into existence. I don't know. Pretty impressive, yes? Some of you not, apparently. You're like, dude, I watched Planet Earth with the BBC, and there was a British accent, and I just believe everything in a British accent. So, no. No, God created everything. It wasn't the Big Bang. It was God. God designed. He is the creator. Genesis 1 and 2. Okay, then we get to Genesis 6 through 8, and we see that, that mankind is not doing well, um, that, that they're, they're sinning with pretty rampant, unchecked sin, and God shows up to this guy named what? Noah. Noah. And he tells him, hey, things are not going well here, Noah, so I need you to build a boat. And as you're building a boat, I want you to preach the longest sermon ever because I want you to preach to everybody about how they need to repent from their sins and follow me so that they can be saved because I'm, I'm going to um, destroy the world. And Noah says, okay. And so you know the story. God told Noah to build him an archy-archy, and he did out of gopher barky-barky. And, and so he builds the boat. Right? Some of you guys that didn't go to church growing up and you're like, what in the world did he just say and what's going on? Is he okay? Is he having a seizure up on stage? Like, what is happening right now? But Noah builds the boat and then what does God do? God sends what? A flood. A worldwide universal flood. In fact, the Bible in Genesis 6 through 8 says, covered all the tops of the mountains, everywhere, over the entire face of the, like the, the author of the Bible wants you to understand that this is worldwide. The BBC people, are, the British people are like, well, well, this was the Epic of Gilgamesh. Nonsense, right? It's garbage. No, this was God punishing sin. Floods the world, wipes out everybody except for Noah and his family. Starts over from scratch with Noah and his family, right? Genesis 6 through 8. Okay, let's keep going. How about Genesis 37 through 50? We meet a guy there who's the younger brother, not the youngest because there's one under him, but a a super young guy, and his name is Joseph, right? Let's think about what God does through Joseph. Well, Joseph's brothers are like, we don't like Joseph because he's got this rainbow jacket. And so we're going to get at Joseph. So we're going to take Joseph and we're going to kill Joseph. No, let's not kill him. Let's throw him in a pit and figure out what we'll do. Hey, look, some Ishmaelite traders, let's sell him. And then he'll be a slave. So they sell Joseph. They lie to his dad. Say, hey, look, here's his coat. We dipped it in some blood. I mean, it's his blood. That's right. It's his blood. He's dead. Sorry, dad. Time to move on with your life. Joseph, meanwhile, ends up going into Egypt where he's sold into the service in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife is not really a nice lady and uh, is a little bit of a vixen, if we can put it that way. And she tries to entrap Joseph in sexual sin. Well, Joseph, being a man of God, says, no, I'm not doing this. And, and it runs, and she grabs his scarf, and, and she holds on to it. And Potiphar comes home, and she's like, dude, this Israelite slave tried to rape me, and here's his scarf. I have it for evidence. Well, Potiphar gets mad. Joseph goes to jail. Joseph's in jail. He meets these two dudes who have weird dreams. They come to him, and they're like, I had this dream. And the other guy's like, I had this dream. The first guy up... Joseph says, hey, your dream's good, man. You're going to be restored to your position as Pharaoh's cupbearer in a few days, and things are going to go well for you. And then the baker's like, well, man, this is good. If, he, if that's a good dream, here's my dream. And Joseph's like, yeah, dude, you're going to die. Um, and then Joseph says, oh, but by the way, remember me. Well, they don't because the one guy dies. And then the other guy, 
goes back into Pharaoh's service, and it's not until Pharaoh has a bad dream, who knows how much longer, and the guy's like, oh yeah, I forgot Joseph. He's like, I was supposed to remind you of this earlier, but there's this guy in prison named Joseph. He knows about dreams. So Joseph comes into Pharaoh's household, interprets his dream. Pharaoh says, wow, that's amazing. Puts him number two. And you guys know the rest of the story. But what is God doing? God is saving his people, delivering his people, preserving his people during a time of famine by orchestrating all of these events with Joseph so that Joseph would one day tell his brothers what you meant for evil, what God meant for good. Okay, let's keep going. Exodus 1 through 14, what happens there? The... Exodus. Yes, this was not a trick question. Yeah, the Exodus. So God shows up to this guy who's a former bigwig in Egypt who knew Pharaoh's daughter pretty well, used to maybe even call her mom occasionally. Um, but because he killed an Egyptian and then, then the Israelites didn't want him either, he ran out to Midian. So he's in the wilderness. He's, in, he's, he's caring for sheep in the middle of nowhere. And God shows up in a burning bush and is like, hey, take off your shoes and come. Let's have a, a talk. And so Moses does, and God says, I, you're going to go free my people from Egypt. And Moses is like, no, burning bush, sir. Um, you don't understand what my background is with Egypt, and things didn't go well, and plus I've got a speech impediment. And the burning bush, God says, it's okay, I've got your back. Throw your staff down, look, there's a snake, and then I'm going to send Aaron with you. So Moses shows up in front of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the known world at the time, and says, hey, Pharaoh, let my people go. And uh, Pharaoh says, no. Um, and then God does what? Sends 10 plagues. And the 10 plagues are an attack on some of Egypt's greatest gods that they had in their nation. And the final one is the death of the firstborn, which was an attack on Pharaoh himself. And finally, Pharaoh calls Moses in and says, get out of here. Well, Moses says, okay, great. So he goes back to the, the, the people of Israel and he says, okay, um, Pharaoh's good with us leaving now, so let's go. They uh, plunder Egypt on the way out by asking everybody for their earrings. They're like, hey, those are nice. Can I have them? Yeah, sure. Why not? And then they leave and Pharaoh says, wait a minute. I just lost all my workforce. So he gathers his army and all of his chariots and they chase the Israelites into the wilderness. Well, the Israelites come to the Red Sea and they're like, oh no, there's water, the Red Sea. What are we gonna do? God clearly let us out here to die. Moses, you screwed up. Moses says, God, what happened? Why are we here? God says, hold your arms up like this. Um, and he did and the, the Red Sea parts and all of Israel walks across dry land. And then Pharaoh's like, well, sweet, this is awesome because he's not smart. And he runs into the, the middle of the, the, the Red Sea, or at least all of his chariots do. And God's like, all right, this is way too easy. And just lets the water come back and wipes out all of Pharaoh's army, right? Again, the power of God delivering his people. Let's keep going. Joshua 1 through 6, what happens there? Joshua fit the battle of... Jared, thank you. Again, those of you guys who didn't grow up in the church, you're like, why does everybody, this is weird. Why does everybody know all these songs? Yeah, Joshua did fit the battle of Jericho. They show up. There's this gigantic city after they crawl, cross the promised land and they're discouraged and they're like, look, there's this giant city and they've got all these walls around the city. And Joshua's like, okay, I've got a plan. Uh, God told me we're gonna march around the city uh, a bunch of times and then we're all gonna scream and the walls are gonna just fall down. Okay. Sure. I mean, why not? What do we have to lose, right? I mean, if not, we just go back across the river. It's, sure. Why not? So they do. And what happens? The walls came a-tumbling down, right? Again, the power of God leading his people into the promised land that he had promised them. How about 1 Samuel chapter 17? What happens in 1 Samuel chapter 17? You've got a, a small shepherd boy, another small shepherd boy whose name is David. And you're not David, by the way. Let's just get that out there. But you've got David and David shows up and David is going to check out this battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. And David comes up and there's this gigantic, literally a gigantic dude, a, a giant named Goliath. 
and he's mocking Israel, but more significantly, he's mocking God. And David, the shepherd boy, says, that's not right. I'm not okay with that. Who's going out to fight him? And all of his buddies and all of his brothers and all of his companions and even King Saul are cowering in fear of this guy. So he goes into Saul and says, I, I, I've got it. I'm, I'm, I, don't worry about it. I'm good. Let me go. Saul says, well, here's my armor. David says, I can't wear this. It's a size XL. I'm like a shmedium at best. So David goes out to battle and takes a sling and his stones. And he goes out and he takes the sling and he fires a sling, a single stone, and it drills Goliath in the head. Goliath falls down. David runs up, pulls his sword, and chops off the head of the giant. Because of David? No, because of who? Because of God, right? Again, God delivering his people, God doing these things. And then we've already seen Daniel 1 through 2. So here's what I want to ask you. Yo, when we consider that, when we disobey God, when we compromise, we're looking at our situation and saying, God, it's, it's harder for you to show up for me than it was in any of these circumstances. That's why we went through all that just now. When you don't trust God enough to obey him, you're saying, okay, God, yeah, you did all this stuff in the Bible and where'd my spot go? You did all this stuff in the Bible in fine and well, but what I'm up against, God, is bigger than what Moses was up against. What I'm up against, God, is, is bigger than what Joseph was up against. What I'm up against, God, is bigger than what David was up against. What I'm up against, God, is bigger than what Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were up against. And you know what, y'all? Maybe it was, but the point is not that this is all God can do, but that he did this. And what does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 3? He says that God is able to do far more above and beyond anything anything that you are able to think or imagine. And so if you're looking at a situation going, God, you can't come through for me. You're wrong, not God. You're getting your friend pressure from your friends to compromise on your convictions of what you know the Bible teaches and you know that our, our culture hates what the Bible teaches. And so and you compromise. Well, the Bible doesn't really teach that about marriage. The Bible doesn't really teach that about creation. The Bible doesn't really teach that about gender. And what you're doing is you're saying to God, okay, God, you're not big enough for me if I lose those friendships. What you're saying is I love those friendships more than I love you, God. Or let's just call a spade a spade and say what we're doing here. If you're struggling with purity and you're giving into temptation, what you're telling God is, God, I know my satisfaction should be found in you, but I don't believe that you're enough for me. I don't believe that you are as satisfying to me as sex would be. You're not enough for me. I have to have more than you. Say so you're struggling with cheating. You're struggling with stealing. What you're saying to the Lord is, okay, God, I know that you are in your word, the one who says that you will provide for all my needs and wants, but this time, I, I don't believe that you can provide for me. I need to take matters into my own hands because you aren't powerful enough to give me what I need. See, these are the lies that we believe when we disobey God in his commandments. Every single time you disobey God, you limit God. Every time that you obey him, though, you give him a platform to glorify himself, to show up big so that you can say to everyone who's looking at you, God is enough. Bring it. God's enough. Take my life? Fine. God's enough. God's got me, and that is enough. When you obey him like these three obeyed the Lord, you're, you're looking at the enemy the way that these three looked at Nebuchadnezzar, and you're saying, do whatever you want to do. I'm fine with it. Bring it. 
But my God is bigger than you and able me, able to deliver from whatever you throw at me, and he will deliver me from your hand. And so students, obey God. It's so much more than a list of right and wrongs. It's a, an act of worship to him, and it's an opportunity for him to show up big in your life. This was David's mindset back in chapter two. You remember after he prayed for the interpretation of the dream and he was given the interpretation of the dream, the first thing that he did was what? He worshiped God. God showed up big through his faithfulness and Daniel recognized that and worshiped him and praised him. Students, when God shows up big through your obedience, praise him for it, worship him, give him thanks for it. Testify to people about it. Say, hey, can I, let me tell you about what God's been doing in my life right now. Let me tell you how big God is in my life right now. Let me tell you how God helped me overcome this battle of sin in my life right now because he's bigger and he's enough and he's awesome and he's good and it had nothing to do with me or my willpower and everything to do with him. This was also the mindset of these three as they stood before the most powerful king in the world and boldly defied him. There's one more reason, though, why these three did this and why our obedience is more than a list of right and wrongs. Notice that these three put it the way they did. He's able to deliver us from the furnace. They didn't say he will deliver us from the furnace. Their obedience was not contingent upon whether or not God did what they wanted him to do. They believed he was able to do what they wanted him to do. But they obeyed regardless of what he would do because their obedience was anchored in who he is, not what they wanted him to do for them. That's our final point tonight. It's this. Obey God for who he is, not what you want him to do. Obey him for his character because he's God. Not because you want him to come through for you in a certain way. This is not a, a transactional relationship that you have with God where you bring your obedience in order to get his his blessings, his whatever, his, his, it's not a vending machine. Your obedience is not currency with God. Again, verse 17, if this be so, our God whom we serve, is, he's able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Look at verse 18. But if not, if he doesn't deliver us from the furnace, king, listen, we're still not gonna serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Know that, king. Even if we die, we're going to die. Look, we're, we're not going to compromise. We're not going to back down. You can threaten. You can ratchet up the heat in the furnace, which he does. But look, we're still not going to bow down because our confidence is in, is in who God is, not what we want him to do. Here's a newsflash for you. Christians die. Christians die from persecution. Some stats from Open Doors USA that I found today. Over the last year, 340 million Christians live currently in places with high levels of persecution. So we're talking places like North Korea, places like closed off countries in the Middle East, places like India, Pakistan, places where it's illegal even to be a Christian. 340 million people, Christians, live there. And some of them, a lot of them even, end up dying. In fact, last year, 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith. And those are the, only the numbers that we had reported. I guarantee you the number's higher than that. It's probably way higher than that. 4,700 Christians killed for their faith because they are Christians. This is not 2,000 years ago. This is now. This is today. 
Almost 5,000 churches were attacked. 4,200 Christians were arrested, sentenced, and or imprisoned without trial. Christians suffer. Christians die. Christians go into the furnace and don't come out of the furnace. And so if you're in this to say, okay, God, I'm going to obey you as long as you come through for me the way that I want you to come through for me, eventually you're going to fall by the wayside. Because God does not operate the way that we want God to operate. He does not always come through for us the way that we want him to come through for us. And if you're waiting for him to come through for you the way that you want him to in order to obey him, then you're not obeying God. You're, inve- you're obeying a, a God of your invention. You're obeying your own comfort. You're worshiping your plans. You're worshiping your idols. You're not worshiping God. Yeah, we may come to a point in time when in our, in our own lives, in our own country, when to obey God is to suffer for obeying God. There was an article that showed up just this week that Pastor Mike texted us this morning that was a, a pastor in Germany who was fined 1,800 pounds or whatever the euros, that's what it is, 1,800 euros because he spoke out against homosexuality. And here's the reality, guys, if it's going to be there, it's going to come here. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, that's fine because I'm not a pastor, that tells me all I need to know about you. Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, they knew who God was and what he had done. And that's what drove their obedience to him. They knew that he was sovereign. They knew that he was all-powerful. They knew that he was gracious and loving and faithful. And they didn't say, okay, God, we'll obey you as long as you come through for us. But look where we're at, God. There's the fiery furnace right there. This is for real, God. Do you, are you, hello, are you awake up there? No, they they stayed faithful. They said, look, we'll go into the furnace. If that's what it takes, we'll go into the furnace. King, let it be known. We're not going to worship you. We're not going to worship your image. Because their obedience was not based on what they wanted God to do, but based on who God was. I want to close tonight with a story of this man. It's a man by the name of John Hooper. If you guys don't know about the Marian martyrs, these are men, English reformers, who died under the reign of Queen Mary I. She is the one who earned, infamously, the nickname Bloody Mary. There's a book out there if you're interested in history and these sorts of things, and I would highly recommend it to you, but it's by J.C. Ryle, and it's called Light from Old Paths. And it's all about these men, these Marian martyrs, and it wasn't just men. It was 277 people who died under Mary's reign, and some of them were women and some of them were children. The majority of them were, were pastors. And they died because they were preaching Scripture. And Mary, being a Catholic, didn't like the fact that they were preaching against Catholicism, preaching against the doctrines of the Catholic Church. And so she demanded that they would recant their teaching, which means to deny their teaching. And if they didn't, they were executed. Here's the story of John Hooper. On August 29, 1553, Hooper appeared before Queen Mary's council. And the council sent him as a prisoner to the fleet, a notorious prison known for housing people without the due process of law. Throughout his 17-month stay in the prison, judges begged Hooper to recant and subsequently set himself free. But time and time again, Hooper refused to give up a sliver of Christ's truth. I love the way he puts that. Time and time again, Hooper refused to give up a sliver of Christ's truth. 
On the 4th of February, 1555, the council finally condemned Hooper to death by flame for supporting the rights of priests to marry and for defying the doctrine of transubstantiation. So this came down to the fact that Hooper said, look, it's not a biblical doctrine that priests shouldn't marry. And he said, and also this business of transubstantiation, that the elements of communion actually become the literal body of Christ and blood of Christ is wrong and heretical because you're re-crucifying Christ every time you take communion. So that's what he was preaching against. And the Catholic Church said, you have to stop preaching against that. He said, I'm not going to stop preaching against it because I'm going to preach the Bible. Sir Anthony Kingston, whom he had once offended for rebuking his sins and later saved through the preaching of his gospel, came to see Hooper just days before his death and told him to consider his safety and asked him to recant. Consider, Kingston said, that life is sweet and death is bitter. Life hereafter may do good. So here's the rationalizing. Here's the compromise. Consider, Hooper, all the good that you can do if you will just recant. You don't have to mean it. In fact, there was one guy, Thomas Cranmer, who did recant initially with this logic. Said, well, I'm going to recant to save my life so I can continue to do the work of God. And then while he was awaiting his time to appear before the, 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 the papal council, recanted his denial. The Lord convicted him. And so he stood up and all of the papal councils gathered together, ready to hear him deny Christ and deny the biblical teaching that he had been holding to. And instead, Cranmer says, I'm denying my denial. Put me back in jail and send me to death. And Cranmer was so worked up about that. And I know I'm off of Hooper for a second, but this is an amazing statement. Cranmer was so worked up about that and so distraught about his compromise and his rationalization in order to save his life that when he was strapped to the stake and burned alive, he, the, the, the wood was piled up all around them, right? And so the fire came from the outside in towards them. And Hooper took his right hand that he had signed his recanting with and he stuck it first into the flames because he said, I want this to burn first since it's what signed my recantation. Back to Hooper. Consider, Kingston said, that life is sweet and death is bitter. Life after this may do good. To this, Hooper memorably replied, the life to come is more sweet and the death to come is more bitter. The life to come is more sweet and the death to come is more bitter. On his way to his execution, strictly told not to speak, Hooper looked upon the nearly 7,000 people gathered to watch his execution, many of them a part of his former congregation. And with cheerful eyes, occasionally glancing toward heaven, when he came to the place appointed where he would die, he knelt down to pray until a soldier laid a stool before him. And on top of it rested Hooper's pardon from Queen Mary herself. Accept it and live. Reject it and die. But at the sight of it, Hooper cried, if you love my soul, away with this. Soldiers fastened Hooper to the stake. The way this would work is they would be fastened to the stake, which was a wooden stake in the ground, and they would have bands of iron that were wrapped around them and bound to the stake. And then the wood would be piled up, and the, the bands of iron, if you can imagine being burned, of li- burned alive, the bands of iron were there to keep them in place. Well, the men came forward with the bands of iron, and Hooper said, you don't need to do that. I'm not going to move. Well, not believing him, they bound his torso to the stake, but they left his upper body and his legs free. 
Once bound to the wooden stake, Hooper began to pray. Lord, he said, I am hell, but you are heaven. I am swill and a sink of sin, but you are a gracious God and a merciful redeemer. Have mercy, therefore, upon me according to your inestimable goodness. An inestimable goodness that had led him to the stake to be burned alive. Hooper continued to pray until soldiers began to fasten three iron hoops to him. This is what I was talking about a moment ago in order to so that he may not escape. And Hooper refused them saying, I doubt but that God will give me the, the strength sufficient to abide the extremity of the fire without these bands. Nonetheless, the soldiers prepared a, a hoop around his torso. After a short period of time, the man appointed to prepare the fire walked up to Hooper. And while laying, sorry, lost my place there. And while laying the kindling, the man asked Hooper for forgiveness, as he did not know any of the offenses Hooper had committed. In reply, Hooper said, you're doing nothing to offend me. God forgive you of your sins and do your office, do your work, I pray you. The man stepped off the platform. Initially, the fire struggled to fully ignite due to a lack of wood, with a strong wind blowing the weak flame away from Hooper. And after a while, the fire died. With more wood to fuel it, the second fire scorched Hooper's hair and burned his, his nether regions. However, this fire also died, at which Hooper exclaimed, For God's love, good people, let me have more fire. Fueled by even more wood, the third fire did not stop. Before his mouth turned black and before his tongue became too swollen to move, before his lips shriveled to his gums, Hooper exclaimed, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Thus he was 45 minutes in the fire. And even as a lamb, patiently he awaited the extremity of the fire itself. He neither moved forwards nor backwards nor to any side, but having his nether parts burned, he died as quietly as a child in his bed. We obey God for who he is, not what we want him to do. God was not less worthy of Hooper's obedience because Hooper died. The apostle Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified. Thomas was speared to death. Philip was executed for converting a Roman official's wife. Matthew was stabbed to death. Bartholomew was executed for his faith. James was stoned and then clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot was killed for refusing to worship the sun god. Matthias was burned to death. And John died in exile. If you didn't pick up along the way, those are Jesus' 12 apostles. Was God worthy of their obedience? Even though he didn't come through for them the way that they wanted him to come through? Students, are you going to be okay if you die young? Is that going to make you angry with God? if you don't get to be what you want to be. If you don't get to have what you want to have. 
Is your relationship with God right now contingent upon the God that you want him to be, or is it contingent upon his simple, basic identity as God? Are you following him for what you get? Or are you following him because he's Lord? Because here's the reality, y'all. Five, six years before they were looking at the burning fiery furnace, these three had no clue that they would be where they were. So if you think to yourself, man, this seems intense because we're living in Southern California in Orange County and sitting in Compass Bible Church and we're talking about dying for our faith. We don't know what the future is going to hold for us. Be ready for your worship to be tested. See your obedience as a platform to glorify God and resolve to obey him, not for what you want from him, but for who he is. Next week, we're going to see the rest of the story, which is also pretty cool. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for who you are. And Lord, we are, are in so many ways thankful that we don't live in a culture, in a society, in a world where there are statues that are set up and people that are commanding us to bow down and worship them and fiery furnaces that are awaiting us. God, we are, are thankful for that. And yet, how much more should we be freely just expressing our devotion, our love, our commitment to you? And how much more distracted yet are we by the gods of our own creation? by the things that, that we serve when nobody has a gun to our head telling us to bow down and serve them, but the things that we serve just because of our own sinful passions and desires, God. There are so many things that we fill our lives with that we say, this is going to make me happy. This is what I need. This is what I, I have to have this. And, and we give our passions. We give our money. We give our time. We give our devotion to these things. And, and we don't realize that we're worshiping idols instead of worshiping you. But Lord, there are times where we refuse to, to obey you because it's hard for us. It's uncomfortable for us because we're worried about what other people will think of us. And we don't understand and we don't realize maybe that what we're telling you is you're not big enough for us in that moment. You're not enough for us in that moment. We would rather serve this than serve you. And God, there are so many times that we come to you and we think to ourselves, well, God, if I do this for you, will you do this for me? And that's not how it works, God. So anchor our devotion to you with a worship that just flows, Lord, even as the song that we sang leading into this, the song that we're about to sing as well from a, a heart that is consumed with a desire to worship you with all that we are.